0: Blog Talk Radio. 22nd 2017 edition of don't let it heard and this is where we discuss news politics and culture from an american exceptionalist perspective and i think today i will show you that it's really looking at the ideas behind american exceptionalism and i'm going to go into a fairly deep dive here today or at least i'm asking you to go into a fairly deep dive here today the title doesn't necessarily indicate a deep dive in, in terms of ideas, but here's the question: Am I being too hard on Donald Trump? On Wednesday, I went through his speech at the UN, pretty much, you know, close to paragraph by paragraph. Skipped a little bit here and there, but I did a lot of detail, and I got, you know, some people saying, "Well, you know, it's, it's still, it's just really great to have someone denounce." socialism at the UN the way that he does. I had another person saying, well, you know, you, you focus on that he doesn't mention rights, but then if he does mention rights sometimes in his speech, you don't give him enough credit when he does use some of the words. And am I just being too hard on him? You know, am I just not giving him enough credit? That's really the question that I want to try to answer today. And also because I did, in my view, run out of time to do what I wanted to do on Wednesday, and part of that was a little bit of technical difficulty at the beginning. But then, also, I had Jean-Lucas Bezza on talking about North Korea, and that took some of the time. So, what I went through is kind of the forest, or excuse me, the trees. I did the trees on Wednesday, but I didn't do the forest, and I want to talk about the forest and the and the fundamental issue I hit hit that a little bit harder today. And I think that's one of the reasons that people who are listening. You know, kind of said, Oh, you're, you're just kind of being too hard on him. Some people, of course, thought the speech was great. And I've got at the top of the program notes, if you go check them out at don'tletitgo.com, I've got an image, a screen grab from my little installment today of what I call this tweet to our dear leader. And it becomes more and more applicable that title, you know, to call him our dear leader on a daily basis. And, you know, it's part of what I'm talking about today. The other hashtag that I add to this when I post it over on Instagram is make America American again. And of course that's one of the things I'm trying to do. I'm I'm being defiant to this guy and, and I'm doing it for the reasons that I'm talking about in today's show. So that you know, that's the question. Was I too hard on him? And yeah, I want to give you a little bit more of, of the picture that I had in mind when I was going through that analysis on Wednesday like I said, I didn't feel like I really got to to finish and give you the forest instead of just the trees. And at the same time, I want to have a discussion with you if you want to call in and discuss this. I know that Josh, who's here in the chat room now, thanks for joining today, Josh. He was one of the ones who had put some comments saying, and not necessarily for sure disagreeing, but at least asking a question. So I'm not telling him, you know, I'm not putting on Josh that he... For sure, you know, is committing to a full on disagreement with me here about this, but I think he's right that I do need to to flesh this out. But if you check out these program notes over at DontLetItGo.com, at the top is the tweet to our dear leader installment today, and someone, uh, Charlie Kirk, I assume he's some journalist that loves Trump, he says, President Trump's speech at the UN was the best speech I have ever heard a sitting U.S. president make in my lifetime, and, of course, Trump is, quote, tweeting that and saying, thank you, exclamation point, because that's what he wants to hear. He wants you to love him and think his speeches are the best ever. I would be interested to go back and compare to Ronald Reagan, at least. Not that Reagan was any perfect person at all. In fact, I was reminded by somebody – the actually, I think I was informed because I don't think I knew this before – but that Reagan was the one, under Reagan – that we got the law that mandated emergency rooms around the country uh, treat people regardless of their ability to pay. And that was part of the thing that has been pushing us down the track further towards socialized medicine. Not surprising that a Republican gave that to us. We've gotten additional you know, uh, increases to Medicare and Medicaid under the bushes and the Republicans have been adding to the problem and, and this one's not going to be any exception to that, but in any event, I would like to compare the speeches. I'm assuming that at least Ronald Reagan's speech at the UN would be better than a Trump speech at the UN. Why? And I'll tell you why: because it would be more based on philosophical ideas. It would it would be respectful and uh, acknowledge the role of philosophy in human life. And you know, I'm, I'm not going to hide from you the punchline I mean you know what's the what is my punchline why is it that I think Trump's speech was bad and that I think Trump is just showing the danger that he represents this is this is the gist of it and I need to ask you if you agree with this or not do you believe that it is ideas that motivate human action and therefore move the world if indeed it is ideas that move the world, we need to acknowledge the role of ideas, recognize the role of ideas and know that there is no way to fight the bad ideas that are causing any of the bad things in the world without at the same time having good ones with which to replace them and being able to articulate and promote those good ideas The a, 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 a president who comes out against, quote, ideology, which is what he did explicitly in that speech at the UN. He came out against ideology. He said, we are for results, not ideology. And then a couple of times when he talked about ideology in the speech, it was very dismissive. Now, mind you, I've now dug up the uh, Oxford English Dictionary, which I'll pull out in a second, and ideology is itself a word that's got a somewhat derogatory connotation, you know, somewhat ideological. There's already a bit of a, a negative slant on it. But you know, what what he does with that with ideology, he dismisses ideas as such. He does not acknowledge that our country, United States, the thing that makes it exceptional, the thing that has made it great, was that it was founded on an idea, a very noble idea, the principle of individual rights. And yeah, he'll say rights here or there, or whatever, but he never treats it as a principle. So what? It, what was that speech? Let's, you know, again, I want to talk about the forest of the speech I gave you at the beginning of the last show my sort of overall take on the speech. And then I did, you know, like I said, the line by line, paragraph by paragraph discussion of it. And then at the end ran out of time. I didn't get the circle back and give you the forest. So the way I see the forest is this, what does he say in the speech? I mean, first of all, it's got, it does have a dark tone. It does have a dark tone. Uh, You know, he talks about all the perils and the dangers. Occasionally he'll make a vague reference to you know, something positive, people pursuing dreams or whatever, but he's never concrete about that. And what we would want in a president or any sort of world leader is somebody to present the positive, the inspiring vision of what human beings are capable of. When he talked about the great promise, the great promise was just eliminating negative, solving big problems like poverty and disease. It was not any sort of extolling of value or the positive. So yeah, it was it was dark overall. The reason I think it was dark overall is because of its eschewing of ideas, it's its rejection of ideas. He rejects philosophy. And I you know, one one thing I want to do is I want to go into Rand's essay a little bit, Philosophy Who Needs It, and give you the kind of picture that she paints of what life is like without philosophy. And then you can go back and you can look at that transcript of his speech or look at any of his speeches in which he's, you know, stoking the fear in people and see if there's something that you recognize right there. You know, that he wants patriotism and loyalty, America first, make America great again, apart from ideas. And when you divorce yourself from the thing Ideas, reason, human reason that can make human life great, you know, make us flourish on this earth. Once you you know, cut yourself off from the fundamental that can achieve human happiness, it's going to get dark. It's going to get scary. And so that, that's how that speech was. Now, what was good, according to him in that speech? Sovereignty sovereignty is huge sovereignty borders sovereignty over and over and over i mean you could do a word count or whatever people do that stuff i didn't go through and get that nitpicky but i noticed the number of instances of that word sovereignty appearing there um what else is good you know according to trump in that speech um you know the the um, I actually I have to go back. I'm gonna have to go back and find something. Sorry. I'm having a little bit of a brain. lag. I had a tweet that I sent out to Quent Cordaire where, you know, you talk about what is, what is good sovereignty, also sacrifice, also collectivism. These were the other things that he said were good in the speech. And, you know, in, in terms of the things that are bad, of course, ideas, um, yeah ideology and ideas are not the same thing, okay, whatever. I've got somebody tweeting some stuff to me on Twitter here. yeah, of course, of course, I went to the dictionary, but by ideology, he means ideas, and he's dismissing ideas. He doesn't acknowledge the role of ideas and and where's the evidence? and i'm I'm just gonna go ahead and talk to Bruno, um, somebody who commented and then blocked me or something. anyway, um this was on Facebook. The evidence that he does not he does not acknowledge the role of ideas is when he would not talk about the nature of the Iranian regime as a theocracy. He'll you know mouth the words radical Islamic terrorism, but he does not acknowledge that beyond the other couple things that he talked about, Iran exporting right. He says oh they export violence and I forget what else. He didn't talk about the fact that they export. An ideology which is jihad, and jihad is an ideology that is adopted by those who take the religion of Islam seriously. And and here's the danger, right? And I, I talked about another thing in the in the speech. He says something about you know totalitarian dictatorships can't last forever or whatever. If you read Leonard Peikoff's Dim Hypothesis. He talks about this. You know, I'm sure Leonard's not the first person. Leonard's an excellent student and of uh, philosophy and history of philosophy. And you know, he goes on. Remove the comment. Okay, whatever. I got notifications and it wasn't there. Um, in, in any event, you know, if, if you're going to comment, just comment and talk to me. Um, he cool. Cool that he's listening now. So Leonard Peikoff talked about the fact that. If you do have a religious dictatorship, you know, he calls it the M, the misintegration, that that dictatorship can have quite an enduring lifetime. And nothing lasts forever, right? Everything in the universe is finite. But the religious dictatorship, by not promising any sort of nirvana here on earth, any sort of utopia in this lifetime, by saying that all the benefits come in the afterlife, those guys can get away from a lot, get, get away with a lot. And Trump makes a couple of positive mentions about religion, patriotism, collectivism, you know, so so God, patriotism, collectivism, you know, the idea that all you have to do is be motivated and have the will and the determination and we're going to make everything great without talking about the way in which you do that, which is by respecting fundamental rights talks about sovereignty, keep your refugees at home. You guys deal with your problems in your own backyard. We're going to be here. He gives you this idea that you're, you know, that the way to be safe is just everybody kind of lock themselves into their house because everything out there is big, bad, and scary. And, you know, everybody's better off just mixing with their own kind. And yeah, the UN, we have to tolerate everybody else's different cultures and values and whatever. But as long as we all respect everybody else's sovereignty Everything will be fine, and that's just not the case, first of all, because some people, you know, you respect their sovereignty, and then there's a kettle waiting to overflow, so you can't just do that. We're not going to be – we can't properly be isolationists, and he doesn't mean that either, but he he wants to close off our borders and keep everybody out, which is, you know, not consistent with the principle of individual rights, the principle on which our country was – uh, let me just go to the beginning of this essay, "Philosophy Who Needs It." That ran. This is a speech that she gave at West Point in March 1974, and the, just the beginning of the essay, "Philosophy Who Needs It," which is from the book of the same title. That book also has the essay "Don't Let It Go," after which I named my whole blog and eventually this this radio show. So. She's going to tell this short story at the beginning, and it motivates the whole thing. She she says, suppose that you are an astronaut whose spaceship gets out of control and crashes on an unknown planet. When you regain consciousness and find that you are not hurt badly, the first three questions in your mind would be, where am I? How can I discover it? What should I do? You see unfamiliar vegetation outside. There is air to breathe. The sunlight seems paler than you remember it and colder. You turn to look at the sky, but stop. You are struck by a sudden feeling. If you don't look, you won't have to know that you are perhaps too far from the earth and no return is possible. So long as you don't know it, you are free to believe what you wish and you experience a foggy, pleasant, but somehow guilty kind of hope. You turn to your instruments. They may be damaged. You don't know how seriously. But you stop, struck by a sudden fear. How can you trust these instruments? How can you be sure that they won't mislead you? How can you know whether they will work in a different world? You know, if they're going to even work in this different world. Uh, She says you turn away from the instruments. Now you begin to wonder why you have no desire to do anything. It seems so much safer just to wait for something to turn up somehow. It is better you tell yourself not to rock the spaceship. Far in the distance, you see some sort of living creatures approaching. You don't know whether they are human, but they walk on two feet. They decide, we'll tell you what to do. You are never heard from again. This is fantasy, you say. You would not act like that. No astronaut ever would. Perhaps not. But this is the way most men live their lives here on Earth. Most men, she writes, spend their days struggling to evade three questions, the answers to which underlie man's every thought feeling in action, whether he is consciously aware of it or not. Where am I? How do I know it? What should I do? It's, it's a very dark picture that she gives you. If you, you know, human being without philosophy and no way to decide any of those fundamental questions. Um, sorry, I just got distracted by Twitter. So, so that's really the picture, you know, that sort of dark. How are we going to navigate in this world? Let me be the leader, Trump, who is going to lead you. Let's not, you know, adopt any of that really scary and bad and evil ideology. And again, when he says ideology, he is lumping together with it ideas and principles. And sorry, when I reference the principle of individual rights and when I ask, that someone who is the President of the United States in the 21st century actually acknowledged the fact that our country was founded on the noble idea, which is this principle of individual rights, and that he make some effort to act accordingly in practice. I do not think that I am appealing to emotions or any of the other things that I've been accused of in in the past. I just don't see it. And I see it as quite dangerous that He gives this speech at the UN, and that's it's applauded despite its explicitly anti philosophical nature. Yes, he used the term ideology, but he lumps in there basically all of philosophy. He does not acknowledge the important role of ideology in human life. He used ideology, conveniently that term, to denounce socialism and communism, but what is it? It's failed because of its results, not because he gives you any profound understanding of why it's evil from a moral perspective. And of course he can't, if you go over, let me see if I can get over to, yeah. Okay. Over the program notes at the blog. What does he do the very next day? He talks about the fact that this Graham Cassidy, whatever is the the latest, Obamacare light version that they're going to try to foist upon us in the Senate. Thankfully, we've got Rand Paul and some other people holding out on it. Um, he says, Trump says in his tweet that he will not sign into law Graham Cassidy unless it includes coverage for pre-existing conditions. And he says it does. Now, does it really include, you know, full on Mandate that, for example, insurance companies cover pre existing conditions without charging anybody any extra? No. If you go and you look at the answers to Trump, apparently in it, that, you know, yeah, supposedly it covers pre existing conditions, it mandates coverage for pre existing conditions, but it allows the insurance companies to charge quite a bit more. Nonetheless, what do you have here? You have insurance companies basically as the agents of the government in charge of redistributing wealth, which is socialism. The day before he tweets this, he's there denouncing socialism as as a failed ideology at the U.N. And then he nonetheless is insisting he's not going to sign that thing unless it includes a mandate that will keep us firmly on the path towards socialized medicine, because if they do that, you know, one of two things is going to happen. Basically we're going to have the crony fascist medicine model as insurance companies are going to stay in business because they're going to be agents of redistributing wealth and they're just going to destroy medicine and make it worse because they're going to be sucking up in the bureaucracy of their insurance companies, more of our wealth and time and health and everything else. Uh, so that's one way it could go. Maybe the companies will survive. It's just going to be a big fascist model of healthcare, or they're not going to be allowed to raise rates at a level that would uh, permit them to make profits while covering pre-existing conditions, and so they'll go out of business. I mean, it is—it's so, um, you know, it's so basic. It's such basic laws of just economics and morality and common sense that an insurance company should not be forced to insure, quote, insure for something that's already occurred. You're not going to buy home insurance and say, okay, well, now I'm going to buy fire insurance. I just had a fire at my house yesterday and I'll buy fire insurance today and you have to sell it to me. It is ridiculous. So, you know, he's doing this. It is social and it's redistribution of wealth. But he's saying, well, it's not socialism. Why? Because you're doing it through Markets and insurance companies. It's a name only. It's the fascist model. He is not treating socialism as any sort of concept that he understands exactly what it is and how it works and why it's immoral. He so therefore, he's not going to protect against any of it happening here as well. Uh, In the same thing where he was, you know, that paragraph, I, I looked at it the other day, in the same paragraph where he's denouncing Venezuela. He's saying how governments need to care for their people or something. How is it that socialism came about? Because people decided that it was somehow government's job to care for everybody on behalf of all the people who thought they had a moral duty to be their brother's keeper, right? He doesn't understand these, you know, as principles. He is, he got everybody on board, you know, to dismiss ideology. I don't know how many people, I, I haven't heard other people except for Euron Brook, you know, sign on to the idea that that speech was bad because he denounced ideology. Now, ideology, yeah, again, ideology has this connotation. Why don't I just go ahead and pull that out because I've said it twice now. Hold on. I happen to have uh, the very old, huge versions of the OED, it was Leonard Peikoff's copy that, so every so often I pull it out and make decent use of it. Okay, so ideology, you know, the first connotation of it is just the science of ideas, that department of philosophy or psychology which deals with the origin and nature of ideas. So that's, you know, a neutral one. Then the second one, ideal or abstract speculation in a deprecatory sense, unpractical or visionary theorizing or speculation. Okay. So when he talks about ideas, he wants to label it as an ideology because it does have that negative connotation, but then he doesn't turn around and offer what the antidote is. What is the antidote to socialism or communism. The antidote to these quote failed ideologies as he calls them is capitalism and it's understanding what the moral basis behind capitalism is. He never talks about it. He mentions freedom a little bit but freedom, freedom from what? Freedom never you know freedom from initiation of force. So he doesn't get it at a fundamental level and as I said, you know, what is it that he tries to get you behind in that speech? Patriotism, God, sacrifice, people be willing to sacrifice for their country. You should love your country. What should the love of country be based on? He doesn't tell you. Yeah, he throws away the word rights, you know, as in a in a parallel list of a number of items in there, but it nothing about what that principle is. You know, he talks about the appeal of the American Constitution. Why? On what is that appeal based? It's because it respects human rights. What are the great words in the Constitution? We the people. He talks about it in a collectivist, democratic sense, mob rule. So this is why, you know, again, if look at the overall tone. Yeah, he does. He throws a few of the, you know, the terms that we would like to see a president use in there. But he doesn't put them within a context. That allows those terms to be meaningful and operative and let you think that he's going to be animated by the right ideas in his actions. So that is why there's that's my case, why I don't think I'm being too hard on Trump and why I think you really should be worried about Trump. And I don't even think that you should give him really much credit for saying certain things at the U.N., you know, denouncing socialism when he's got absolutely no answer And no antidote, because when he doesn't provide any answer or antidote to socialism or communism, he's just going to be laughed at. At least Ronald Reagan was good at projecting a vision of the positive and and the good in America on more of a philosophical foundation. And what we've got is now we've got pretty much this anti you know philosophical this pragmatist who's there for you know results not ideology that's my thing now if people want to call in and argue with me and say okay no you've got it all wrong and here's why and if you've you know taken a look at the speech and you say okay Amy you're reading that speech wrong call in and let me know the number is 760 888 5817 again that's 760 888 5817. Now, Josh says, you shouldn't call for the words if you don't give credit for the words. The, the words stand for concepts. And, and really, the question is Josh, does he use the words as concepts, as part of any sort of a theoretical framework? Because otherwise, it, he's parroting them. He's just parroting them. And if you look for, oh, say, say that I want him to be an objectivist. I mean, it'd be nice if he was an objectivist, but I don't think you have to be an objectivist in 21st century United States to realize that our country was founded on a noble idea. I've seen numbers of presidents talking about that, that our country was founded on this idea, the principle of individual rights. I've seen Barack Obama talk about the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So again, if you go back to what Trump in his speech said Were the three best words in the Constitution? We the people. It's just, you know, he he says it's about giving power to the people, essentially mob rule. He wants, you know, and I said you can listen to his inaugural address and get the same message. He's going to satisfy as many demands of the mob as possible, and he's getting the message from the mob you know, the, the forgotten people that he wants to protect by closing he, the best way, close all the borders. Don't let anybody in because it's all danger from without. Now don't, you know, for me, like I said, I, I'm fine. Yeah. You know, borders are, are great. He keeps talking about borders. I'm fine with having borders. I'm fine with having checks at borders and it's, it, you know, whether I'm fine with it shouldn't be your standard anyway. The the reason that I think having checks at borders are, is good is because a government if it's going to mean anything it's going to if it's going to have you know a monopoly on the legal use of force over a particular geographic area if it's going to have that jurisdiction then yeah you've got to have borders you're going to have a check on the borders but if you're going to stop people at the borders and you know check them and prevent them from coming in the standard by which you do that has to be the protection of individual rights, which is the initiation of force. It can't be, you know, just some ideas in the head. And I've talked about it on past shows, you know, you and I could sit down over a beer or a glass of wine and have a discussion as to, you know, how you apply that standard and everything, but you can't just have it based on ideas in the head. It's got to be something like, an imminent threat of some sort of initiation of physical force coming from this person, this person who's coming in, if you're going to keep them out, should be part of some, you know, active attempt, you know, they're actively engaged in an attempt to harm U S citizens. Yeah. Then keep them out. If they're actively engaged in that and they, it could either be criminal, it could be jihad or other, you know, terrorist-type motivations, or it could be, um, you know, full-on war from an actual hostile nation. We haven't had a nation per se for a while. Well, we've got North Korea now, North Korea. Yeah, words don't have meaning to Trump, says Josh. So Josh, I think Josh's main complaint with me is that I was focused on the, you know, saying he didn't say these words, but really what I should have said is he doesn't use these words in any meaningful way. He doesn't use them as concepts. And on Wednesday, I would have gotten to that if I had spent more time with you guys at the end of it. But, you know, really, that's the, that's the fundamental is that this is he, he rejects ideas. All ideas are to him, quote, ideology. He shrugs it off. And my message is, is that this is more dangerous than you think it is that's that's really it it's more dangerous than people are giving credit for and you may think that we're getting some gains in the short term but if people are accepting this and cheering this speech and sort of subconsciously allowing in this anti-ideological framework then it's going to leave them ill-equipped to you know live their lives in a happy way or choose leaders in a uh, you know, a way that's going to benefit the long-term survival of, of the Western world, you know, United States and the Western world. Kay McInnes in the chat room says, we have been fighting progressivism for so long, it's hard to jump away and start jumping all over the right Yeah, I mean, I don't want to jump all over the right. There are some decent thinkers on the right. The thing that makes me a bit sad is that some of the more decent thinkers are not looking at this speech in the bigger context. You know, again, when I saw that one sentence, of course, it jumped out at me. And then again, if you look at the other uses of the term ideology, he every time he's talking about any sort of a big, uh, you know, framework of philosophy or some, you know, sort of a system Of government like communism or socialism That's based on an ideology He's denouncing it And he refrains from that Conveniently with Iran He won't talk about the fact that it's a theocracy Why? Because he needs Religion In order to make his alliances With his friends the Saudis To justify that he's going to go Over there and make peace between The so-called Palestinians And the Israelis He's going to mess that up you can tell by that tweet he put out there the other day. I don't know how you people who are still thinking that Trump is going to save Western civilization um, are, you know, kind of rationalizing away that tweet about how excited he was to hang out with the boss and the Palestinian Authority dude. Um, I'm sorry. I'm just I'm pretty upset about this tweet because it, it is dangerous. And in fact, I'm a little bit upset with myself because. I was also a person who thought maybe we're slightly better off with Trump. And I was telling a friend uh, earlier today, I was saying, well, you know, I was in California, so I had the luxury. My vote didn't matter here in California. Um, Sorry, putting down the huge volume of the Oxford English Dictionary here. So my vote didn't matter. And had this luxury of you know, voting for Gary Johnson because my state was going to go for Hillary anyway, but I realized the more now that I see of Trump, if I obviously it's hindsight because I've learned so much just watching him in action the past several months, I may actually, if I had been in a swing state, knowing what I know now, if I had been in a swing state, I may have actually voted for Hillary. That's scary because she's horrible. She's really terrible, but that's how much at least I'm concerned about this anti-ideology of Trump. Let me take a quick little break, and and when I get back from my little musical interlude I'm going to give you, I can do one of two things. If you are online and you want to talk, then go ahead and press 1, or you can call in and and press 1. The number is 760-888-5817. And then... If you don't do that, then one thing I want to do is kind of remind everyone of what I think was a prescient warning from Ankar Gatte about Trump and and the danger that he represented. Not him per se, but people's reaction to him. So I'll talk about that in a second. Okay, we are back. And the topic is, was I too hard on Trump? Am I being too hard on Trump? Was I too hard on Wednesday? And I would, you know, again, I'm, I'm my argument is no, but you can feel free to call in and tell me yes. If you're on the line, and you do want to talk, make sure you press one. So I get the little question icon that tells me that you want to ask a question or make a comment or debate or or whatever. I don't have the wine or the beer, so we may not be able to get through all of the gory details of exactly how I would implement, you know, details of, of application of principle, but I've got coffee here so we can make some progress at least. Okay. And the chat says, my vote did not matter. I uh, either, Arizona was going to go for Trump, no matter who I voted for. Yeah. So those of us who were in these States that it, you know they they weren't even close to swing states we'd have the luxury of voting for a pathetic Gary Johnson just out of protest and because Gary seems like a a decent guy even though he's not an an objectivist either again what what's the standard i mean do i expect someone to be objectivist no but i would say that the anti ideological framework the You know, the the total dismissal of the realm of ideas, the total failure to acknowledge the philosophical foundation that made our country great. That is the danger. And like I said, just take a couple of tweets that have happened since the speech at the U.N. And you can see how his lack of philosophy and his lack of principle plays out in practice with that Graham Cassidy and also with the um, You know, the Palestinian authority that he's so excited to have that meeting and he's going to try to force a so-called peace agreement on the Israelis. You know, you can't make peace with people who want to destroy you. It's a very blatant thing. He says he purports to know that with respect to North Korea, right, that we can't bargain and all this kind of stuff, but he's going to force it on Israel. It's ridiculous. So. And why is he doing that? Some sort of pragmatic thing that he's got going, you know, anti-extremism. Again, extremism. And and I, I pointed out language on Wednesday, too, where he talked about uh, aggression using technology. Disembodied aggression employing technology. Won't even talk about that it's people and that it's people motivated by a certain ideology. Doesn't acknowledge the role of ideas in human life. So he is just completely crippled. When it is, you know, when it comes to fighting, he might fight the right people at the right time, occasionally, but he's never gonna do it for the right reasons. And you can count that he's going to turn around the next day and not do it. And and he is showing a consistent course of conduct that is going to take us down, you know, continue on the path towards socialized medicine in this country, which is scary. And like I said, he is not Handling the Islamic threat properly, as much as he talks about, it, you know, he's wiping out ISIS. Something else is going to pop up in its place because he doesn't get the root of the ideology. He doesn't talk about ideas being an export from Iran the way that we all should. Um, one thing that I wanted to add: this was in the nature of what Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand had this term that she used to use, and I, I don't know how familiar people are with it. I had learned it from Leonard. Taxi cab thought. So, you know, she'd be at a speech or maybe a television appearance, and then she'd be taking the taxi back after the television appearance or the speech. And she'd think of something that she could have said that was better, a way she could have answered a question better. You know, she was saying something on TV and she thought she could have formulated it, but a taxi cab thought. So the thought you have in the taxi cab on the way, I'll, Occasionally bring these in and call them taxicab thoughts. You know, what, what did I think of after the show that maybe I could have added that would have been interesting? One of the things that I talked about on Wednesday was Trump bargaining, essentially, or it, it sounded like he was bargaining with the world over how to handle the refugees. And the underlying assumption was it is our moral duty to care for the refugees, you know, particularly in the Middle East. It's our moral duty to help care for them in the United States. We just have to. And then the only question is whether we bring the refugees in here, which is potentially and also very expensive, or whether we give money to help, you know, the refugees survive somewhere closer to their home countries. And he's arguing for that. If you listened to the way that he's sort of saying, you know, hey, we've always held up our share of the bargain, we, you know, we're some of the most charitable and altruistic people and we contributed to this and that and, you know, we give so much money and, you know, hey, you guys have a good track record of you, the UN, you know, you have a good track record of addressing the things that cause people to flee their homes. Remember that whole part of the speech? the bargaining that was going on, you know, it's, it's like, keep it in your own backyard. Yeah. You know, maybe we can throw you some money. We know it's our duty to take care of these people, but do it over there, not over here. The bargaining that it, that I was getting from that sounded very much like something in Atlas Shrugged. Those of you who have read the novel, you will recall a scene in which Tagger and all of these other crony businessmen They're all talking about, like, who is going to give what concession to, you know, the so-called good of the nation so that they can survive for the next five minutes. And it's, you know, is there going to be an increase of the railroad rates or the union's going to get, you know, an increase of the wages or this mandate over here or that over there? You know, and they've got the politician and all the cronies and they're sitting there bargaining. And here's Trump, you know yeah, we all accept that we all have the duty to sacrifice for the good of everybody, the refugees, whatever. And let me just bargain with you. You know, I get you to take care of this and look, we take care of that. And boy, look how much budget we give to the UN. And it it, it was that really sort of disgusting bargaining with the underlying premise that everybody is their brother's keeper. And we just all have to figure out who's going to be the one to sacrifice what and where all about sacrifice, the collective work together. If if we all just believe it, everything's going to be fine. And anyway, go back and and read that part of the speech and see if it doesn't remind you of Taggart and the cronies and Atlas Shrugged haggling over, you know, who's going to have to sacrifice and give a little bit here, a little bit there, the rates, what the speed is going to be and the, Unions and the and everything else now, what is this with twitter should should Trump stop using Twitter? I don't know that Trump should stop using Twitter per se you know i'm I'm ambivalent about it. He could probably use Twitter more effectively and more presidentially, certainly, there's that, but here's twitter the The good thing about having a president use Twitter, and I've talked about this before. Is that it's consistent with Americanism in the following way that he and everybody else, me, you, everybody who wants to be on Twitter, we can all be there on Twitter, all tweeting and he can tweet and we can tweet back to him. And it's as if we are on an equal playing field. You know, we, yes, a president who is, you know, properly presidential, we should be respectful. I don't curse at him and stuff. Uh, I, I sometimes will be a little bit sharp in my comments, but I believe I'm still respectful, but talking about the ideas, right? I'm talking about the ideas. I don't go and insult him per se, but I'm always addressing, you know, particular content. And I don't say anything if I've got, you know, if, if he's tweeting about something, and I don't really have anything to say. I don't say it if, unless I've got some specific thing that I feel he, I really need to answer this guy. I do it, but this is what, is great about Twitter is that you can be on the same platform with politicians and not just politicians, but celebrities and other accomplished people in other areas of life. You know, I've done a little tweeting to to Tim cook just to say, Oh, you know, it's a beautiful new Apple headquarters or to disagree with some policy announcement that he has, or to say, okay, well that's good, but it's too bad. You don't understand how this idea would apply in other areas. And, you can have that exchange. So is it is it bad that Trump is on Twitter? Not necessarily. Is the way that Trump uses Twitter sometimes bad and non-presidential? Yes. I think it is. It allows him to bypass the media. Yeah. And and one thing also is that all of this me, you know, social media, Twitter and everything else, it has allowed somebody anybody to bypass the Old party machinery, the Democrat, the Republican party machinery. Bernie Sanders almost got through the Democrat machinery, did not, because Hillary Clinton just has way too much power. Again, she was so scary. I couldn't imagine that that I would have to vote for her. I'm so glad I didn't have to, but I could almost see doing it. Like I said, because I am concerned about philosophical framework. Is this the correct way for the country to hear about news from his tweets? Asked Corey in the chat room is there a correct way? I mean, this is out of his own head or fingers or mouth or however you want to put it correct way. I don't know. I mean, I I have found it an interesting spectacle, right? You know, to adjust myself to this, the idea that we go to, you know, the New York times and the New York times now has to have people who specialize in doing nothing but analyzing tweets. I myself, Follow Donald Trump on Twitter. And I um, have signed myself up to get notifications when he tweets. Although if you don't sign up for push notifications, you'll only get them if you actually happen to be on Twitter at the time. I I don't know. It's like, do I have to do push notifications? Um, But yeah, why? Because I want to know what he's tweeting because it could affect my life. He's going to go call Kim Jong-un Rocket Man and – I'm going to get blown up or something. Um, I don't know if that's true. I don't know exactly what's going to happen with North Korea, but yeah, I feel, I feel like it's good to, to know. I I don't know that there's a, a quote proper way to, to get news. What I am concerned about is when there is any mode of communication, whether a president conducts himself in a presidential way, and sometimes I'm afraid that he's not. Yeah, sometimes uh Corey in the chat room is saying loading, loading audio for smooth playback or something, there may be glitches or interruptions and typically it is an individual thing, not everybody at the same time. Occasionally blog talk is gonna have an overall glitch. What I actually I don't think I've ever had a problem with blog talk recording. So if you ever get to the point where you have a little glitch, at least you can go back and check out the Recorded podcast. Um, let me go, like I said, I wanted to go over to cars warning about Donald Trump. And this was published on the Ayn Rand Institute's website, Org, under their Voices for Reason blog. And the headline is One Small Step for Dictatorship. I found it by Googling Oncar Gate. Donald Trump I think that's all I had to do and then I was able to find this so he talks about the very beginning you know American exceptionalism American exceptionalism is real it's it's interesting that I've gravitated in talking about my show and 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 telling you at the outset of my show at the introduction of the show what this show is about to this phrase American exceptionalism and I But And I don't know if I subconsciously absorbed this from his essay last November, but it's percolating in my mind. You know, the whole idea is, yeah, it's the ideas behind American exceptionalism that we need to understand properly in order to know what would be required to make America great again. He starts out at the very beginning, American exceptionalism is real. The United States is founded on a political philosophy and a profoundly revolutionary one at that. The Declaration of Independence expresses the viewpoint eloquently that individuals possess, quote, certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and, quote, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, end quote, now, Trump ignores almost all the time this idea of rights. He'll pay lip service to it. He'll say the word rights sometimes, occasionally. He avoids it when he can. He does. He avoids it. He talks about interests in that speech when he can avoid saying rights. Um, but most of the time he ignores that. What he focuses on in that formulation that I just gave you is the part about the consent of the governed, you know, we, the people that's to him, the most important thing. And that is the subjective part. That is what the collective, you know, subjective consciousness, whatever they want is is okay, but it can't be that it's gotta be both. It's got to be the correct content, our law, you know, the rule of law, the rule of law has to have The right content. It it has to be based on the principle of individual rights in order for it to be valuable. You can't just say, oh, there's a rule of law, we all have to respect it. And as long as everybody follows the proper democratic processes, whatever comes out of that is okay. No, it's not okay. Part of our founding was not just that it's the people who govern, that you have to have the consent of the governed. that everybody has to have representation, right? No taxation without representation. It's not just about the representation. It's also about substantive limitations on the power of government. And that's the part that Donald Trump is willing to throw out. He's doing the consent of the govern thing. And the way that he is interpreting that is, you know, partially through our democratic processes, but he's also happy to bypass and do executive order. There's some executive order that I have to go look at about what he's going to do with North Korea that might affect my safety. Do these? Is this typical? I have to go look at this. Is it even the proper process? We need to have, if there's going to be any sort of war, our Congress having some sort of input in that, right? So sometimes he's not even so good on the representative part. But typically, I think he sees himself, you know, he wants the approval of history he talked about in the speech the other day, he, he sees himself as satisfying demand, he wants that cons- consent, he wants that approval, but he divorces it from approval for what approval for a government acting on a principle that limits it to doing only that which is right for human life, life as human beings. And like I said, also that, you know, one of the things that was big and absent from that speech is the beautiful things that human beings are capable of when they are free to use their reason, act according to their own judgment, follow their dreams, sustain their lives. When he talked about things that were beautiful, it was only about erasing the negative. It was only about solving problems. And he'd tell you what those problems were. In great detail. And a lot of the problems are due to ideology. Or they're just due to bad guys disembodied from any ideology when it doesn't suit him to talk about the ideology that they're actually motivated by because it's Islam. They don't. He doesn't want to say that. Um, anyway, let me go back to Ankar. So Ankar gets this, right? That, that our nation's founded on the philosophy. And the thing that concerns him about Trump is that the thing that got him motivated is a willingness to drop that ideology and in effect just be loyalty. So let you know be loyal to Trump. Now, he says that on November 8th when people elected Donald Trump, the United States took its first step toward dictatorship. Now, he says, if you think this is hyperbolic, read on. He says it's not That Donald Trump himself possesses the full mentality of a dictator. Although I'd be interested now to talk to Ankar and see if he thinks that Trump possesses more of the mentality of a dictator as time goes on. That, you know, again, the anti thinking, the anti ideology, when he keeps bashing ideology, very Hitler like. You know, uh, you remember the quote from Ominous Parallels, I should have pulled it out, where uh, Leonard Peikoff quotes Hitler talking about. How he always puts the people together In the mass because as a mass They're not able to actually think And they just feel and you know loyalty to the fur. It's a very bad paraphrase It's been years since I looked at it But that's the sort of mentality That Trump seems to be Explicitly appealing to And he continues to go do these rallies As if he's running for re-election now Go to the rallies get people stirred up Everyone's supposed to be so excited about him And then he says, you know, there are friends and colleagues who say he's not really like that. You know, he's more thoughtful and everything. And he, Ankar was already back in November, doubtful about whether Trump is a more thoughtful, inquisitive, less bigoted person behind the scenes. Who knows if he is. So, but he says, you know, it's not necessarily that Trump has the mentality of a dictator. He says, nor is he saying that Trump in office is going to be able to, to constantly wield dictatorial powers, right? We're not going to necessarily become a dictatorship under Trump in the next four years or eight years or whatever it is, three and a half years, seven and a half years. Ugh. He says, you know, even he'll acknowledge this is on car. He says a Trump administration, if viewed out of the full context may even enact Some measures, others and I would regard as positive, including improvements in the tax code and replacement of Obamacare with something less harmful. Good luck with either of those. Remember, remember, Trump fans, Trump also said he is willing to raise the rates on the rich if they have to be raised. He'll do that as well. Uh, He is concerned about a Christian variant of Sharia law. I would be concerned more about that given what he did again on in the speech on wednesday he's not denouncing even a bad religion as an evil ideology why because he wants you to be sympathetic to religion he did invoke god in a couple places and sacrifice and he he talks about um remember when he did talk about free to pursue, pursue your individual life it was your individual life as god would have intended for you or something right There's limits on what you should be individually free to do. It should be limited by some sort of vision of of religion, which means be ready to sacrifice. As Craig in the chat room said the other day, and I don't think I acknowledged him on air. Craig was here in the chat room. He said, Trump is ready to collect sacrifices. That's how he sounds in that speech. So yeah, maybe a Christian variant of Sharia law. Then he says, um, you know, as destructive as... As destructive to freedom as he Think a Trump administration is Going to be this is also not his point So what is Ankar's point what was Ankar's point when he says that we Have by voting Donald Trump In taken one small step For dictatorship What is His point let me get This Um, Okay he says his argument is This Trump publicly projected The mentality methods and campaign of a would-be dictator, however much it may have been an act and however difficult it may be to enact specific decrees. And what he says more disturbingly, he thinks that Donald Trump won the presidency because of this. He says the issue is not Trump the person, what he might do to the country while in office. He says these are important concerns. The issue is what the success of his campaign reveals about the country. And he says, of course, not everybody who voted for Trump did so for identical reasons, but he says you cannot whitewash the campaign. Um, You can't call Trump's performance the, quote, upbeat improvisational show that most of his fan base was waiting for. Um, He says it's also wrong to think that the campaign success stems mainly from the supporters' reasonable responses to real grievances, um, one of them, of course, what you know people went to Trump because they thought that he was going to confront the problem of, as I call it, Islamic jihad, as, um, or just jihad, call it jihad. They call it at ARI, Islamic totalitarianism. I'm not a fan of that term. Worries about economic controls and economic stagnation do exist, he says, but there's much evidence that suggests that they, they do not explain Trump's support. And he gives you evidence in this regard. Um, he says Trump is implying a whole new sort of economic you know, set of controls, foreign trade, immigration, and outsourcing, you know, that the appeal is, in effect, protectionism. Um, Trump paints this picture of America where everything is in decline and is a disaster and everything else, so he's appealing to fear. You know, if you look at the, the mantras and slogans and strategies, And he says, if you look at America engulfed in darkness, he says, uh, Trump offers up scapegoats responsible for the misery, like communists demonizing the bourgeoisie, Nazis demonizing the Jews, socialists demonizing owners of private property, egalitarians demonizing the 1%, Trump demonized Hispanics, immigrants, journalists, free traders, elites, Muslims, you know, and then he said, of course, he doesn't do that anymore, uh, the mainstream media, among other groups. They, he he said or implied, are the source of all our struggles. Get rid of them, and America gets rid of all her problems. So, what did he do in the speech to further that idea? In terms of who is being demonized here, people who embrace evil ideologies, right? Now, are are, you know scapegoats or whatever? But he now it's ideology as such that is the scapegoat, right? You're going to look for results. You don't want people who are principled standing in the way, Uh, you know, so for example, who knows what he's going to try to do to Rand Paul now that Rand Paul is going to prevent this perfect Graham-Cassidy bill from being passed and whatever. So ideology is now, and, and to me, if you put ideology as your scapegoat, you know, as the thing that is preventing results from happening, that's even scarier than some of the particular concrete scapegoats i mean it's terrible when you say that you know these the the different segments of the population are scapegoats based on the group that they belong to that is terrible but then to say ideology would by which is his proxy word for philosophy for ideas for actually acting on principle to to scapegoat that you know to say that that's standing in the way that is i would say more more alarming even than this. So I would love to have a discussion with Ankar and kind of revisit and ask him, you know, now that you've seen this, what do you what do you think? Do you think that it just proves your point? And I and I think that it does. Um, he has stopped scapegoating Muslims, but he is still scapegoating trade, right? He talked about renegotiating these trade agreements and everything and not making them quote one sided. And we all know from basic economic theory that if we made a, quote, one-sided agreement where we just put down all the trade barriers, let's have trade barriers when we, they're needed for security reasons, like don't trade with North Korea, don't trade with Iran, of course. But if you're talking about a country that doesn't pose a threat to you, don't put any tariffs on that stuff. Just let the law of comparative advantage do its work and enjoy the fruits of that. Enjoy having cheaper goods and being able to spend your resources on other things. But no, one-sided trade deals. That's a big scapegoat. And repeatedly, sovereignty, sovereignty, sovereignty. You deal with things in your own backyard, he said, during that speech. We deal with things in our backyard. You know, don't see, remember he said in that one part of the speech, don't see the people in the far-off nations as the solution to your problems. You stay over there. Don't come over here. Don't bother us, don't bother us, don't bother us, right? Um, He doesn't want to welcome into our country those people who want to come here and work hard and pursue a better way of life. And, yeah, he acknowledges we've got this moral obligation to deal with the refugee problem, but, hey, you know, let's just throw some money at it and keep you guys over there. Don't bother really trying to sort through and be principled about which refugees we would allow in and which ones we would keep out based on rights and based on an understanding of the ideology that motivates the dangerous refugees. Nah, don't do that. Just throw some money at the problem. Keep them over there. How are we going to get rid of the sundry list of scapegoats, writes Gatte? Through political power. More precisely, by handing Trump whatever political power he deems necessary to make America great again, he somehow and singularly knows what to do. I alone, Trump declared, can fix it. That was Trump's quote. I alone can fix it during one of the debates. Anyway, we've seen track record. I think that has proved Gatte right. Again, if you know if you if you think I'm wrong here about this, I'm being too hard on Trump. You can call in and let me know. Might lose half my audience for saying I'm not going to give credit to Trump for saying certain things, for mouthing certain words out of context. I think, you know again, if you go back and you read that speech for yourself, that you'll see, as I did, that the overall tenor of it was that the world is a dark and scary place, which, as I said, Rand would tell you, it must be if you've divorced philosophy from your life. You don't have any way to know solidly where am I? How do I know it? What should I do? The three fundamental questions that philosophy alone can answer to paraphrase Trump, you got to have that framework. And he is rejecting ideology. He's throwing the good ideas out with the bad. And therefore he doesn't have the power to offer a a good antidote. And insofar as you're cheering for him down, denouncing socialism, He's denouncing ideology as such in the very same breath. Part of that is to get you to dismiss, quote, ideology and to get you to dismiss, quote, extremism as such. That's one thing he's willing to say about the jihadists, that they're extremists. You know, he he doesn't want to tell you exactly the relationship between the dictatorship, the evil dictatorship in Iran and, and the ideas of the people who want to kill us. So that's that's my idea there. Oh, by the way, there is an interesting. Oh, I'm going to take this call in a second. What I should do is why don't I play the music, take the call, and if I have time I'll tell you. Isn't so important. One sec. Okay, I have actually a couple people who want to talk, so I'm going to go ahead and grab the first one first. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this?
1: Hi, this is Richard from Australia. How are we going?
0: Hi. Well, uh, thanks for calling.
1: Okay, so in regards to, quote, Trump supporters, um, you just – this is like you put this broad term, and you're applying that everybody who – the people who support Trump supports all the moves he's making – it's it's like how you support Ted Cruz, but, you know, he'll say things and you'll criticize him for mm-hmm. those things. So Trump supporters don't actually support all the things Trump says.
0: Sure, that's true. And, and so then the question is – and actually, you know, to be fair, what I should do is say that there are particular Trump supporters who I have in mind – There is a group of people who talk about themselves as being sort of fellow travelers with uh, objectivism. You know that they say that they actually say they're better objectivists than I am. uh, That they're going to make objectivism great again because I've destroyed it, or I and other people like me have destroyed it by criticizing Trump. They, these people, have seen Trump as the thing that's going to save us. And my question for them is you know if you see these particular things that Trump has done these are the things that they these people I know were counting on Trump to you know solve for example the problem of Islamic jihad if i was counting on that if i thought that Trump was going to solve this problem i would be super disturbed if i saw that tweet where Trump is sitting down with a boss and Thinking everything's wonderful. I would have also been disturbed by the Saudis with the orb thing, you know, at the anti-extremism center where they're all putting their hands on that glowing orb. Um, but that tweet the other day was pretty gross, um, and and so I'm throwing that sort of in the face of these people who are telling me that I've destroyed objectivism. So there's a little bit of animus behind when I say these things because I, I'm saying to these people, I wasn't wrong. Uh, at the beginning when Trump was going to be in office, my idea was it might be slightly better than Hillary. I'm, and I, thought, I was thinking, yeah, it probably will be slightly better than if we had Hillary. And as time has gone on, I think that Ankar has been proven right. And it, in fact, it's maybe even a little scarier because given the tenor of the speech, the anti-ideas, you know, ideas, anti-philosophical nature of, of his last speech, that lends itself more to a dictatorship mentality that doesn't really want people thinking they want them to just have patriotism and love for their country and be willing to sacrifice, which was the message he gave toward the end of the speech. So yeah, maybe, maybe what you're hearing is a little bit of defensiveness on my part, right? Cause I'm being a little defensive arguing against these people, but I, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I do not paint all Trump supporters with a broad brush. And I don't know if you listen to my show consistently all the time Richard now I've got more shows but one of the things I put that thing out there there was that silly woman who said you know why do I keep hooking up with Trump voters or something it was a glamour magazine article and um, you know she hates herself because she keeps sleeping with Trump voters or something and I was talking about well you know if if I was on the market you know I was if I was out there um, if there were people who had voted for Trump and you know, maybe if they could make me understand why they voted for Trump, I was I was trying to create you know some sort of an argument like if they maybe had been a Trump supporter or a Trump voter, but not necessarily an enthusiastic across the board Trump supporter, right? So they voted, but you know why did they vote? Maybe I you know I could have this discussion, but. um yeah, so I, I've made it clear a number of times that I could see somebody in certain circumstances voting for Trump, having their eyes open, knowing that it wasn't going to be the greatest thing. And, you know, it's not like I denounced that person and put him in the same boat with all these other people. But there were other people who were saying, yeah, you know, if you're a real objectivist, you would have supported Trump as the guy who's going to save Western civilization. And that's the kind of. Person that I really want to throw these examples in front of and say, "Hey, you know, go ahead and and defend this guy now." That's all.
1: Yeah, Um, and you keep on. You've said a couple of times um, today that you know you you you're considering. You know, well, if you had the ability to, if your vote actually mattered in the. Election, you would have voted for Hillary. Now, what? If, what uh, would have been I don't, I don't know if I
0: could have. I don't know presidency. if I could have, but I'm, I'm thinking I might have. I you, might have you know, considered you've said it, it a few
1: yeah. times tonight,
0: Amy. I'm I know. I know. And it, and, it, and it would pain me to vote for her. Oh, so gross. Yes.
1: I've I, I, I just been sitting here this morning, just being like, I, I think Amy's forgotten what a Hillary person at sea would actually look like. You know. Mm.
0: It, it would it would be it would be terrible and then here's the question right would if we had hillary in office would we at least have the republicans all in unison fighting the creeping towards
2: dictatorship?
0: Oh, no no
1: this is um this is the the famous phrase from the alt right and this may upset a few people on the show to hear the phrase cuck but this is this is the main phrase behind it some of them will do that they they will I the say, oh, well, I don't actually oppose uh, single-payer, so I'll I'll go along with this bill. And you'll have, you know, 10, 20 of them, however many required to flip over the thing.
0: Well, in then, order to get well then, then there's the next question, Richard, right? Then there's the next question. Suppose we did get single-payer under Hillary. There is some risk that we're going to get single-payer under Donald Trump. There is some risk oh, yeah. of that. Would you rather have it come in under Hillary, where at least we know that it's coming from, you know, a socialist essentially, or do you want it to come from, oh, look, a businessman and, you know, he's realizing that even a businessman knows that we have to have universal health care, you know, every civilized society in the world has it, and to even absorb it as Part of you know what modern capitalism means today. You know nobody believes in extreme true capitalism, or you know what's worse, maybe it will be something less than single payer, and then they'll say, oh well, we've tried capitalism, right? Whatever happens under Trump, it's going to be labeled as capitalism, which is worse, right?
1: Well, that's that's only that's a short term thing. That's the the, da- the damage from that's only eight years. I mean I know that sounds like a long period of time to you know most of your listeners but that's that's only real that's against well, right, the grand Well right but when when Republicans is the actual policy itself
0: Okay but okay but when when Republicans institute these things it's not like they're going to get undone so the damage isn't just 8 years so for example like I said somebody on Twitter I don't know if you were listening earlier somebody on Twitter educated me about this it was Ronald Reagan who imposed on hospitals the requirement that they provide emergency treatment to people regardless of ability to pay. Ronald Reagan.
1: Yeah, but who who remembers that except for historians now? N- okay. No one. Um yeah. So at the end at the end of the day it doesn't matter who implements it. It's the fact that it's implemented. And it's terrible. Like it's a terrible policy, don't get me wrong. But I mean at the end of the day it doesn't matter who implements it. Whoever implements it gets it done, which is the
0: problem. Right, but then, for example, you know, when Obama was talking about different things in his speeches, and I used to point this out all the time, one of his favorite ways to use the appeal to authority fallacy is to say, you know, people on both sides of the aisle have supported X measure, whatever the measure was, and the reason he was able to do that and get fact-checked and everything came out okay was because – you have under a Ronald Reagan, you know, this sort of thing about the, the duty. So it's, it's not only historians, right? You, that allows somebody like a Barack Obama who either he or his flunkies who write the speeches do the homework. And then he's able to make those statements about how well, you know, both Republicans and Democrats have supported this horrible socialist thing. I'd like to impose on you.
1: Well, yeah, but that's, That's because people aren't really thinking about what the actual statements actually mean. You you can go ahead and say that people on both sides of the aisles oppose immigration. You look at Bill Clinton's run back whenever that was, I've seen quotes around where Bill Clinton was talking about building a wall and removing the Mexicans. And I'm saying, hang on, now Trump's saying this back in 2015, 2016, 2017, and Mm -hmm. it's a terrible thing. But Democrats have said this too, you know, because it was popular to run on back during that election season. It's it's just one of these things that, you know, it's both sure, people on both sides of the aisle have said it, but people just aren't really thinking about, well, what does that actually mean, you know?
0: So so your idea your idea is that we are gonna end up maybe being better off under Trump still than Hillary and that it was
1: I'm I'm just I'm just saying if we just compare a Trump presidency versus what the Hillary pl- presidency looked like, and I mean we don't we don't know what a Hillary president she yeah. would have actually looked like because you know well, we're not Well, okay, so
0: so so maybe but we can we, some... can
1: we can sort of look at this and be like, well, okay, what probably would have happened on the Hillary, Hillary presidency? We can compare mm-hmm. and be like, okay, we only we only had two options at that point of voting, and okay, well, um, you sure the Trump presidency was going to be a bit you know interesting but at least it's not the hillary you know
0: sure and then but then here's the thing right so yeah maybe i should never think that idea that i I mean you know it's, it's all academic anyway because i can't take the knowledge that i have now and go back then and i wouldn't vote for hillary anyway because there'd be no need to in california because california was going for Hillary so it's it's all totally oh, yeah, yeah, your, 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 state,
1: your state's basically irrelevant. it doesn't matter what you do that state sure, is, they, sure. But, um, but but I think
0: but, i'm I'm willing to concede to you Richard, maybe I should not say that I would vote for Hillary even if i go back and I was in a swing state and all that stuff, nonetheless, even if I wouldn't vote for Hillary maybe maybe I'd vote for Trump in that swing state, but I'd still have the resolve to Criticize him as much as possible, oh, yeah. and state and state explicitly when he's being either anti-ideological or he's implementing bad measures. And I do. I give him credit for good measures here and there as well. You know, he's been freeing up a lot of regulation on the energy sector. So you know, my cynical interpretation of some of this is that he's looking forward to using all the money that's going to be you know, the tax revenue that's going to be generated when the energy sector is more productive. He wants to use that to build the wall or do whatever wonderful things that he wants to do. So I'm a little cynical. It's not like it's a principled thing, but it is good. It's good that he's freeing up the energy sector. We need the ability to use fossil fuels freely as, you know, as freely as possible so that we can have a good life.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, Australia's energy prices, I don't think you would see any news on that in America there, but our energy costs are going through the roof because we've got these quote what, green targets that we've got to meet, with 50% right. renewables and all this sort of nonsense. It's, it's terrible shit. Um, but then you know, on the same brush, you know, the the, the serious, serious quote Trump supporters unquote, um, you know, the alt right and all that sort of stuff to. Almost quote, but I can't remember the exact quote from Richard Spencer was, yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to support the guy. But as soon as he's in office, we're going to be criticizing every move he makes. And then when Trump went along and he bombed Syria, I think he fired 59 missiles in there or something. Mm-hmm. The upright right went out in there and they protested Trump. And then the Antifa turned up to you know counter-protest those guys. And those guys had to turn around and tell Antifa, oh, oh, is it Antifa for Trump now? Oh, wow. <laughs> and <laughs> the confusion that caused in the Antifa was just, oh, <laughs> they didn't know what to do. They were just like, hang on, we've turned up yeah. to counter-protester. <laughs> so, you know, so, like so everyone so Nobody can keep to straight what they're their, protesting and,
0: anymore, right? Nobody can keep straight what they're in, in favor of anymore.
1: Well, oh, the, the old right's got their narrative. They keep pretty consistent to it. But yeah, the Antifa, they, they were there to counter protest you know, <laughs> the, the old right. And then it was just like, oh, Antifa's pro Trump now. Oh, no. <laughs> and the chaos that caused was funny. Um, where was I? I was going some Yeah, so basically, if, if anyone who's voting for Trump's going to have their, um, I'm voting for him because X, and I'm going to philosophically disagree with him on you know, X and X and X when he goes and does that. So I
0: think there I think there were a lot of people who bought into like you know, again, this is the picture that Ankar is is laying out in the essay. The world is a scary place and here's the guy who can take care of all the scary things and they don't necessarily have a reference to ideas. You and I are, are thinking more philosophically about these things, but there are a number of people who aren't and, and the You know, the problem is here's Trump. Trump has this great opportunity. I mean, imagine if you, Richard, if you were able to go speak before the UN, what advantage you could take of that to move the ball a little bit forward in terms of people having respect for ideas and the role of ideas in human life, and then in particular promoting the right ideas, the ideas on which our country was based. I mean, you know, there he is. He's talking about the Constitution of the United States. It's the oldest constitution that's still in use. And why is that? Well, it's because of the great principle on which it's based, you know, the so-called conscience of the Constitution that Timothy Sanford talks about. It's the the fundamental principle of rights as enunciated in the Declaration of Independence. That was a perfect opportunity for Trump to throw that in there, and, you know, if he wants to make America and the world great again, that would be the best way. But what does he do? He uses it as a platform to scare people into giving him his way.
1: Well, yeah, but we've got to remember Trump isn't a philosopher. You know, he isn't a philosopher. Of course he's not. Of course
0: he's not. But he so, also, you know, but, and by but, the way, the people who write his speech, wait, wait, wait. they have no grammar either. But, yeah.
1: No, no. Um, well, I mean. Does Trump really use grammar? I thought you know.
0: It was but people are writing this for him. All he's got to do is read. And, <laughs> it, it, and the funniest thing here, but my funny little story. And actually, Richard, I'm gonna have to go because I got to take the other call. Um, the in Politico, right? They said that they were giving you a transcript of the speech as prepared for delivery, as prepared for delivery. And in it, there were two different times that this happened. But I can only quote one of them. At one point, he he said a word and a world, blah, blah, blah. And it was completely nonsensical. The only way it made sense for him to say a word and a world in that context was if he had misspoken, you know, the that word was a typo. And then he went ahead and then added and a world because he meant to say the word world. But it didn't make sense to use the word word in there at all. Not at all in the context. It made no sense at all. But this was supposedly prepared for delivery. You would not prepare it for delivery saying a word in a world. It was, just, it was just kind of funny in terms of typos and grammar and, and everything else. And, and I wondered when I read that if this was the transcript as prepared for delivery, whether it was a little bit of Orwellian-style mini-true, you know, the Ministry of Truth, rewriting what this was as prepared for delivery to make him not look uh, unable to read a speech. <laughs>
1: Okay, so I'll just make a very quick point on the u uh, n speech Now I know, okay. I know I'm being relative uh relativistic here, but I mean, what did the previous speeches look like to the u n is is President Oh, yeah, you're talking about like Obama upon...
0: selling us off and saying that America's the worst country ever, and the blah blah blah. yeah, but the answer to that right is not we're going to put America first and we have this great country, and then not being able to talk about why it's great at all. Oh,
1: no, it's, it's still an improvement. It's you know, it's not perfect, but it's an improvement. It's great, it's not... but I
0: can't tell you why. And the world is scary, so follow me. <laughs> All right. It's still an improvement. I'm, no, I'm, I'm getting know, a little. Scary. I'm getting a little giddy. As Richard, um, please do call in again. I'm on three days a week. We'll talk again. I'm sure. I gotta grab the other caller. I think. I thank you for your call. Okay. Let me get this other call because I do want to give someone else a chance. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hi,
2: it's Josh from New Hampshire.
0: Hey, Josh. So, what did I do wrong?
2: What did you do wrong? Uh, no, I thought I thought that um I was trying to uh I th- I feel like you finally got what I was trying to get at. Um I've listened to you, to uh both both uh you and your talk about the, you know, the words that they're that they that is being used and I think that In the case of Trump and some other politicians that don't really value words like it might work for for if you're judging Ted Cruz or Rand Paul or even Ron Paul or whatever, they take those words seriously. But but
0: uh, when when Trump says something. Right. You're you're bringing up again now. and And it made me think of one other thing just to think about if he had used some of those words that I'm looking for, right? You know, like on 9-11, I wanted him to say something about Islam. He said nothing about Islam on 9-11 at all in that whole speech. He did in this one. Okay, he put some words in there. Suppose he did that and yeah, he didn't really understand the framework but he did it, but he didn't come out against ideas. Right? Then you might give him some more credit because you don't necessarily expect him to be a philosophical genius but when he says a few of the right words in the context of coming out against philosophy, then I don't give him credit.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I've, as I've been listening to more, um, you know, at first I was like, okay, yeah, we definitely want to hear, you know, socialism in combination with Venezuela so that they can, they can, Mm -hmm. you know, put the blame in the right place. But then when you have him say that, and then, I mean, you know, if you take out that one little section and ignore the rest, it looks fantastic. Just kind of like, um, you know, it can be done with many other speeches. They have one good (laughs) sentence and you ignore the rest. Um, But it, it does lose its value if it is said incorrectly. And so, so what, Maybe we should be not thinking so much about just um, the specific words like, oh, socialism needs to be with Venezuela and rights need to be yeah. with, you know, or freedom needs to be, with. It's, but we it, need to gotta, actually change the. Yeah,
0: it's, it's got to be the, and I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cut you off because the, the show's about to end, fine. unfortunately. Um, it's got to be the specific words, at least in a context where the, it, it's not anti-philosophical. Right? It's not anti-philosophical At least we've got to have that Preferably it, with some of the proper Framework as well Let's continue this discussion again Josh, I'm completely out of time And I'm sorry I didn't give you more So we'll, we'll definitely fine. talk again um, I thank you for calling Everybody run over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com We've got a couple of good news stories And I'm going to have to hit those on Monday I want to do something more positive on Monday So we'll look to any of the good news stories That I didn't hit well enough this week And try to throw them in on Monday. I hope you guys all have a great weekend. I'll also talk a little bit. I've got this link about the Hashimoto's. I am a Bulletproof representative affiliate now. So if you're into Bulletproof, check over at my blog at DontLetItGo.com and and grab some good stuff there. It has good timing because of Hashimoto's. I'll tell you about that. I'll talk to you on Monday, 3 p.m. Eastern time, 12 Pacific. Thanks, everyone. Take care.